Um, and and kind of like Advent is this season of waiting and preparation. Christmas is a season of celebrating. Epiphany is a season where we sort of go on a journey of discovery, where, where we, we work to encounter Christ or the appearance of God in human flesh. So, so during Epiphany, we tell all these stories about the life of Christ. And then we sort of ask ourselves, what is being revealed here in this person, and how should I respond? That's really epiphany. It's revelation and response. And people do have strong responses to Jesus, um, even as a baby, in the story that we just heard read from Matthew chapter 2. People had very strong reactions to this baby. It's evident in just like world history and international events. Um, And our story, you might have noticed, it's kind of long. We read the whole chapter. Often this is split up, but I wanted to hold it together this year and kind of compare the way the different characters respond to this epiphany, this appearance of God in human flesh. The first set of characters I want to think about are the the Hebrew people, just normal, everyday Jewish people living in the land of Israel at the time of Christ, a time in which things were not so good for them. It was tough. It was really tough because they were like this once proud nation. A miracle, really. I mean, we went through this this summer, these, these kind of desultory Semitic tribes, uh, a bunch of ex-slaves who survived and escaped slavery in Egypt, like the, the biggest power in the world at the time, endure the wilderness, um, kind of rose to great heights conquering the promised land, came to be like an economic and military world power. And then because of poor leadership, idolatry, mistreatment of the poor, they lost almost everything. Um, Their nation, their land, the temple, their freedom, it was all gone. And their ancestors were all either killed or enslaved or sent off into exile. And for centuries, there was no Israel. Not really, sort of just a memory. But eventually, some were allowed to return and rebuild their temple. But they were always controlled by some foreign power. In our story, it's the Romans. Um, and their vassal king, Herod. So they're living in their own land, but they're not in control of their situation. In fact, they were constantly oppressed by the Romans in many ways, and by this whole system that favored the ruling aristocracy at the top of society. And, And these people just squeezed every drop of wealth out of the economy and forced everyone else to sort of live at a subsistence level. So this, this one's proud people, who used to be a world power with their own government and army and laws, where everybody had their own land and a communal sense of identity and purpose and faith, now had few rights, no army, less and less land as time went on, and very little hope that it would, would change. And every day living in, in Israel for them was sort of an assault on their dignity as the Hebrew people and as, even as human beings. They had to constantly just kiss up to the Romans um, just to get some scraps from the table. And, and their own corrupt leaders, that was even maybe worse, just to get by. And so the Hebrew people, as a character in our story, the Hebrew people were constantly nursing a deep sense of grievance at the loss of cultural power. They were tired of their situation, tired of groveling, tired of the constant injustices. And so they lived with this sense of grievance that just grew and grew and grew until it was really the dominant issue of this era was was their sense of grievance. 
It consumed all of Israel and every aspect of Jewish life. And it made them really easy to control and manipulate. And the pressure of this constant set of grievance really split the Hebrew people into factions. We've talked about this before, but there were the Pharisees who um, were in charge of the synagogues. And they said, if Israel just get their lives right, if we just follow the Jewish law, Jewish Torah, then Messiah would appear and lead us to freedom. The Sadducees, who ran the temple, of course, said, no, it's the temple. That's, that's the key. But the truth is, they were just the uber-rich who were in bed with the Romans, Romans, and they, had, they were just soaking people um, through the, the temple system. And they got really rich and, and kind of just pretended to care about everybody else. And then there were the Zealots. These are the revolutionaries. And they were, they were essentially kind of, they were like domestic terrorists and assassins. And what they were trying to do was uh, provoke a war with Rome that they knew that they would lose, but they thought if they, if they started a war, they would kind of put God in a bind and God would have to send Messiah and, and lead them to win the war. And then lastly, there were the Essenes. These were the monks of their day who thought they should all just flee to the desert and protect their way of life. They actually lived in a commune down by the, sea, the Dead Sea. And so the, these, these four factions were a response to the grievance, and they all had an agenda for how to settle it. And, and the normal everyday, everyday Hebrew people were so stressed and so overwhelmed with this grievance that they were easily manipulated and controlled by these four factions because they were desperate for somebody to come change their situation, you know, to stand up for them, to make Israel great again. And so they pledge allegiance to these groups that were corrupt, and they would pit them against each other, and they'd fight each other and fight with Rome. And, and that was their situation. That's kind of the first character here in the story, normal, everyday Hebrew people who are overcome by grievance. The next characters in the story are what they term, in our, our translation, the chief, chief priests and teachers of the law. So these are the Jewish religious powers. They were mostly made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And I don't know if you notice where they appear in the story, but they show up hanging around Herod's court. And he asks them, if you remember, where Messiah is to be born, and they, they quote for him the, the book of Micah and says it's in, in Bethlehem. And so they're, they're leveraging their own religious positions to gain proximity to this powerful king. They're enjoying their seat at Herod's table here, even, even though he's, they know he's corrupt and he doesn't really care about them, but, but they're there, you know, hanging out, doing their thing. And which brings us to the third character, which is Herod himself, Herod the Great, who ruled over the land of Israel at the time of Christ's birth. Herod's an interesting guy, and we talk about him a lot. I kind of tried to gather all the different things we've ever explored and just a really kind of tight thing. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Herod, or Herod, Herod, Herod ruled over Israel, and his father was kind of a big deal. His father was born in Idumea, south of Jerusalem, uh, among the Edomites. These were the Arab, ancient Arab people. And back when they were powerful, Israel had conquered Idumea and forced everyone to convert convert to Judaism. And so Herod's father was an Arab, Arabian Jew. And 
his mother was an Arab princess from this royal family. Her family is the ones who built the city of Petra. Remember, I don't know if you remember the, um, from history class in high school, this is the place where Indiana, and Indiana Jones and his team found the Holy Grail. This is, the, this is it. Hopefully you know I'm joking. Um, so Herod's father, his mother was royalty. His father was kind of a big deal. And he grew up in the ranks and became the prime minister of Israel um, during the Hasmonean dynasty. That was a royal family of Jewish kings. And he basically ran the country for Israel's king until Rome came and invaded Judea. And it was Herod's father, actually, who brokered this alliance with Rome. And in that process, he became friends with Mark Antony, Julius Caesar's favorite general and governor. And so Herod had this powerful father who, when he was very very young, appointed his son Herod as overseer up in the Galilee region. And so this is like age 25. He has all of this power, all of this wealth. He gets married. He starts a family, has a child. Then his father died, and the Parthians invaded Judea and took Jerusalem away from Rome. And they installed a new Jewish king there from that old Hasmonean dynasty. And Herod could kind of see, like, my days are numbers. He's numbered. He's watching this from up in, in the Galilee. And so he took a huge risk. He left his home, his land, his kingdom, and sailed to Rome in the middle of winter, which was a dangerous journey, to go find his father's friend, Mark Antony, and ask him to plead his case before the Roman Senate, which he did. Mark Anthony told the Senate, Judea is in, in turmoil. It's super important for trade. It's the eastern edge of the empire. This guy is smart and ruthless. Let's give him authority. So in 40 BC, 40 years before um, the birth of Christ, um, the Roman Senate crowned Herod king of the Jews. And there's this famous scene where Herod goes to Rome and climbs um, Capitoline Hill um, in, in Rome with Mark Antony and uh, Octavia, Octavian, the, the emperor, to offer sacrifices to the Roman god. Can you imagine a Jewish king doing, doing the Roman um, pagan thing, sacrificing to Roman gods? So then he re returns to Jerusalem, only this time with a Roman arty, army, and starts just laying waste. He, he sieges. It's a, it's a bloody war that lasts three years. Finally retook Jerusalem and sent the Hasmonean king off to be killed. And then he goes to work on the aristocracy. He just kills all of the aristocracy and installs a whole new one that will be loyal to him for power. But then he still had some problems. For one thing, now all the Jewish people really hated him because he had the Hasmonean king that he had killed. This, this was their royal family. And for another thing, Jewish kingship was um, hereditary. And Herod's parents were Arabs. So he needed a good Jewish wife from one of the dynastic families. And so he, he divorced his first wife, and he married this beautiful Hasmonean princess named Mariamne. And then the weirdest thing happened to this brutal guy. He fell in love, like head over heels in love with Mariamne. They married, they had children, and Herod's heart in this little era seems to begin to soften a little bit. Mariamne had this, this brother who needed a job, and so Herod installed him as the Jewish high priest. And this turns out to be a bad move because people took one look at this 
this dude from the old Hasmonean dynasty, the old line of kings, and they started to think, you know, in his priestly robes, this, this guy, maybe this should be our king instead of Herod. And so he became a rival. And so immediately Herod, Herod has him killed, tried to make it look like an accident, but Mary Amney knew it. And at this point, the whole thing just turns into like the end of Godfather 1 and the beginning of Godfather 2. It's just like that. Mary Amney rejects Herod, and he kind of um, lost it a little bit. He couldn't think, he couldn't work, because he was so in love, pining away all day for his wife, who is now um, not even talking to him. And this goes on for a while. Herod's mom and sister get kind of sick of the star-crossed lover routine. And so um, they publicly accuse Mariamne of adultery, which it doesn't seem like that actually happened. Um, but they, they backed Herod into a corner here. He had no choice. He had to order her execution. And after that, he just really had a nutty. He kind of went a little bit crazy. He ends up killing the mom and the sister who, who had made the accusation, tons of other people. And of course, Rome's watching this. Rome loves this. This is exactly the kind of nutter they want in charge of the eastern flank of their empire. Right? They want people to think he's crazy and will do anything. But Herod was a mess now. He was losing his mind. And in his lucid moments, he realized he had to do something to get back the Jewish people's allegiance. So he throws himself into these huge building projects. He took a stretch of the Mediterranean coastline and built it into a port city. And it was not fit to be a port city. And that's kind of why he chose it, like to, as if to say, nature does not tell me where to park my boats. Herod decides where to park the boats, right? So he, he built this phenomenal port city, um, actually was the first person in history who figured out how to pour concrete underwater. Yeah, his engineers developed this. You can go, the things are, the, the breakwater he built is still there to this day. It's stunning. And he named this place Caesarea after, after Caesar, Caesarea Maritania. It was a whole tribute to Caesar. And then he went to, to Jerusalem and said, I'm going to rebuild the temple for you guys. It was like 500 years old. It was too small. It was kind of run down. And they were kind of scared. They're like, if, you, if we let him tear down the temple, he's not going to rebuild a temple. So he said, I'll just build a massive new temple right around the old temple. That's what he said he would, would do. And so that's what he did. He planned the construction around the temple. And so they would never stop offering sacrifices at the temple. And since only priests could enter there, he trained like over 1,000 priests to do the construction, the carpentry, the engineering, so they could work without breaking Jewish law. He's like bending over backwards to make the people happy here. And they knew Jerusalem was always super overcrowded during the religious festivals. They needed better infrastructure. They needed places to eat and places to stay and marketplaces. And so he wanted to build this huge kind of Roman plaza around the temple, but Mount Moriah was too narrow at the top. It wouldn't work. So he just built this massive retaining wall. You can see it here in this picture, that big, that kind of the rectangle there. It's like 34 acres, 35 acres in this rectangle filled with rock and, and dirt and is 20 stories high at some places. This is, this is part of the wall that Herod built right here. I'm the little green dot at the bottom in my coat, um, praying at the wall, right? And, and it still stands. Some of it still stands to this day. And yet all the while he's doing this, and Herod's still um, just falling apart. He's coming apart. And um, gets more and more par paranoid. 
He's more and more isolated and lonely. He decides, I'll take a wife. And then we, he marries this woman. And then he decides to rename her Mariamne. Mariamne II, same as his first wife. There was actually a Mariamne III, too, after he killed that wife. I mean, you got really, this guy was really creepy. And, and so he's paranoid. He starts making all these fortresses, like the one at Masada that's on the top of this um, mountain. Look at this thing. It's down by the Dead Sea. I mean, only a crazy person would decide to make something like this. Somebody who's totally paranoid. This will be my last stand, he thought. And he goes on this murdering spree. spree. He ended up killing two of his wives, three of his own sons, his mother-in-law, a brother-in-law, an uncle. I mean, you think your family is bad? Like, this family is really bad. And he eventually, at the end of his life, decided to commit suicide, but he botched it. And in the confusion, the son, who he had made his heir, was told that his father had died. He moves to take power, but Herod's like, not dead yet. It was like the Monty Python said. He kills his, he kills the son. I mean, Herod's going to die in like two days. He kills the heir for moving to take power. It's this really twisted guy who was paranoid and power hungry and totally just crazy narcissistic. And he was so bad, get this, he knew nobody would mourn his death um, because it was so terrible. So he left orders that on the day he died, scores of prominent Israelites were to be rounded up and murdered just so there would be weeping in Israel on the day of his death. That's, that's Herod the Great. Okay, so these are like three of the really important characters in our text today. The Hebrew people, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and then this Herod the Great. And none of them come off very well in our story. They're basically presented as, as examples of what not to do. The Hebrew people are consumed with this sense of grievance, right? Split into tribal factions and fighting with each other in Rome. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, corrupted by power and wealth, sucking up to this leader, Herod the Great, who is a selfish and disturbed narcissist who destroys everything he touched. He was just kind of pretending to care about the Jewish faith. All he really cared about was himself, his own fame, his own reputation. And still, you got all these religious folks embracing him. They're all hanging around in Herod's court, getting their picture took, you know, their names in the paper. And none of them really come off very well in the story. All of them are seen as part of the problem. And in fact, the example of faithfulness in the story comes from the last two characters we're going to look at, the characters of the Holy Family and of the Magi. So let's talk about these two. So Jesus is born in just the last couple of three years of Herod's life, Herod the Great, when he's at his most paranoid and violent. He's living at this palace outside of Jerusalem when this caravan of Magi from the east shows up, asking to be, meet the newborn king of the Jews. There has not been a newborn anything in Herod's house for a while, right? They're like, we saw this star, and we came to pay respects to the new king. And he's thinking, what new king? Um, the, the word magi, it's interesting. We don't really know what it means. Could be sorcerers, scholars, um, astrologers. Magi later became the, the word magician. Um, best guess is these are probably... Zoroastrian priests from Persia. So that would be modern-day Iran, Iraq. And they're following this star, which sounds odd to us, 
But in a world before streetlights, people paid a lot more attention to the night sky. And sort of the smart people in their culture had this practice where if something happened on Earth, they would look to the skies for some event and they would associate the two. And vice versa, if something happened in the skies, they would be looking for some correlation on Earth. And this was very scientific in those days. This is what learned people did. And they're from the East, which also happens to be where the Jews had lived in exile for centuries. And so they had, the Magi had apparently studied Jewish Torah at, at some point because they knew at least a little bit about this Jewish Messiah. They knew he was a king not only for his own people but for all the earth and that he was a king who would bring, bring peace to the nations, to all the nations. And they knew what kind of gifts to bring because it's spelled out in Isaiah 60. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 60 is really familiar, probably. It's, arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawning. This is in day, um, Christian daily prayer. Like, I read this prayer almost every single day. Um, and then it says, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So that's, that's what they brought, gold and frankincense. Nobody really knows why they brought the myrrh or what myrrh even is, but they brought the gold and frankincense. That's what they're supposed to do. And they came rejoicing in great hope because this, this is the king that's finally going to bring peace and prosperity to all the nations. And so they go in this caravan, and they show up in Jerusalem, the logical place to look for the Jewish king, and they meet this Herod who's had no recent children, and he very shrewdly kind of hides his feelings. He says, go and search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But the reader knows it's a ruse. Herod wants to go kill the baby. And so the Magi go, they worship Jesus. They give him their gifts. But it says they are warned in a dream to leave by another route. They didn't go back home the way they came by Herod's palace. They go a different way, and so they survive, and they're, they're seen in the story as one of the heroes, which is weird. It's, that's a strange thing. Remember, the writers of the Gospels were Jews. They, were, they saw themselves as faithful Jewish people. It wasn't like a Jewish faith and this other faith called Christianity at that time. Most Christians at that time were Jewish Christians. They worshiped Christ as Messiah and as God incarnate. And this is important because it just was really weird for a Jewish writer of a Jewish text to name a bunch of pagan priests as examples of what to do. This is an odd detail. It's one of the, actually one of the things that makes me think this story is more believable. It's just not something normal you would even think to write a good Jewish person, unless it were true. And so the Magi are seen in our story as these outsiders, but they are faithful outsiders. It's actually an example of what, during World War II, the Hebrew people began um, naming, um, you say it right, it's haste umat ha'olam. That's the, the Hebrew word. It means righteous among the nations. Haste umat ha'olam. That's what they called people who helped the Jews escape the Nazis, even if they were Christians or of some other faith. They were called righteous among the nations or righteous Gentiles. You may have heard that. They weren't Jewish, but their faithfulness to the Jewish people 
made them just part of the people of God. They're like, you're honorary, honorary members, righteous Gentiles. That's, that's who you are. Um, because after all, Messiah was not just good news for the Jewish people, not according to Isaiah and the prophets. He's to be a light to all nations. There's a Christian theologian, Karl Rahner, um, who would later name this for Christianity. He coined the term anonymous Christians. That's what he called them to refer to people whose lives honor Christ and, and the church. And, and they really do follow Jesus. They just don't really know anything about Jesus yet. He called them anonymous Christians. It's funny, Rahner was Catholic, and the Catholic Church never warmed to this term for obvious reasons. But uh, anonymous Christians was kind of embraced by much of Protestant Christianity in the West. So these Magi, they weren't religious insiders. They didn't, like, convert to Judaism or Christianity. There was no, no such thing as Christianity yet. They were just these learned human beings who were um, so engaged with the sources of meaning from their time, which is things like the stars, things like dreams, things like ancient religious texts, even if they were from the Jewish people. They're so engaged with those things that they're willing to go on a quest, on this journey, to see if they could find this child of meaning and peace. And this seems to be enough for these first century Christians who wrote the Gospels to claim the Magi as righteous among the nations, righteous Gentiles, or, or, or we might call them anonymous Christians of sorts. And I think part of what this tells us is that what those first Christians were looking for, they had. The Magi had. It was some kind of sensitivity to God at work in the world. And this deep desire for meaning and peace, not just for themselves and not just inner peace, but for shalom, right? The right ordering of the world for everyone to, to for everything to work together and relate rightly so everyone and everything could flourish. That's what they were chasing. And they were literally chasing it on their camels across the world. They had this passion for a peace for all the nations, and it spilled out into the way they lived their lives. And for the, for the writers of the Gospels, that was enough to call them, you know, good, good guys. It wasn't enough just to hold certain beliefs either. I mean, if it were, then the Pharisees and, and the chief priests and ruler of the people, they would have come off a lot better in this story. Beliefs are kind of all over the place here. What they cared about were actual lives. Or you could say it, say it this way. If you want to go to Bethlehem, there's only one way to get there. You have to journey with your own two feet. You follow Jesus with feet, right? Not disbeliefs, with your life, with your body. It's only one way to, or to, to Bethlehem. And that's you take a journey. We take a journey. This story is actually part of why um, faithful Christians have always practiced hospitality toward outsiders and foreigners. They make friendships with people of other religions and nationalities because you never know when your own life might depend upon the kindness of strangers and foreigners. Which brings us to the final character, which is the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, who's now maybe two years old-ish, the Magi show up with their gifts to honor the child, and it must have 
worried Joseph a little bit because he's losing sleep. He's having these dreams. And one of which this angel warns him he needs to leave because Herod's coming for him. And, and that's what he did. We're told, let me read it. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night. So he just gets up in the middle of the night. He's like, we're out of here. And went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was, it says, to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So then Herod finds out what happened, right? And since he's such a sensible guy, decides he'll just go to Bethlehem and kill all the male Hebrew children under the age of two, about, about the age of Christ, which has, like, um, mentioning Egypt here, too. We should be thinking of Moses and, and the Pharaoh. And then there's this, this line, I don't know if you noticed, about Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel also has this connection to um, Bethlehem. Actually, it goes before Rachel, clear back to Ruth and Naomi. The Bethlehem was her town. She had left and gone away and come back. And then Naomi there, weeping for her children. And Ruth, wondering if there will be any kind of future. This foreigner, this refugee, right? Leaning on the kindness of the Hebrew people. Rachel is connected because when Rachel died, um, Jacob buried her there in, in Bethlehem. And so now, just as Rachel, remember in her story, had wept and cried, begging God for a baby, the women of Bethlehem would refuse to be consoled, it says, weeping for their own children because they are no more. And yet again, just like with Moses, Jesus, the child of promise, would escape because of the faithfulness of his own family and the kindness of foreigners and strangers. And there's this one detail that I want to notice because I think it's way more central than, than we ever really think of because we kind of sentimentalize Christmas. And the detail is that none of the faithful characters in this story get to go back and live a normal life. They, they don't get to go back home the way that they came. The Magi have to go home by another route, the Holy Family... They're warned to flee to Egypt. They go to this whole foreign country. They would spend three years living as refugees in Africa till one night Joseph had another dream, another angel saying, you know, get up. Let me read it. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life were dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Herod Archelaus, this is one of the sons of King Herod, none of which were, you know, stable geniuses, was reigning in Judea in a place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. Joseph was. Joseph is wise. He's not a fool. So he's afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew. Another dream. So he's looking to wisdom the same way the Magi. So he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This is not his home area. He's from Bethlehem, remember? That's where he goes to be taxed. So he goes clear to this other parts, long ways up there to, to the Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled. This is the second reference to the prophet. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. All the faithful people in this story, the Magi, Mary and Joseph, Jesus, they... They couldn't go back the way they came. 
They had to go home, find home, by another route. And in fact, the Holy Family were forced to live as political refugees in Egypt first and then up in the Galilee. I mean, if you really think about it, Jesus lived his entire life as a political refugee. I was really never taught that growing up. He was displaced from their ancestral lands. Ancestral land was a huge deal to the Hebrew people. They never got to kind of go home. And this is, this is how it goes in, in this story. When you, once you've met Christ, you can't go back and just live the way you were living before. Everything is different now. You're going to have to go home by another route. And we know this because the Holy Family, the heroes of this story, at least along with the Magi, they became refugees. It reminds me of this song I, I ran into this week. That um, It's written by a woman named Liz Weiss. And um, it's sort of... Uh, written as an addendum to Silent Night, you know, the, the, the Christmas hymn. And it imagines, it's kind of like, what comes next? So it, it's in the same rhyming scheme as, as Silent Night, but it imagines the family, the holy family, as political refugees. It's called the Refugee King. I want to just read it for you. Um, Away in the manger, they ran for their lives. The crying boy Jesus, a son they must hide. A dream came to Joseph, and they fled in the night, and they ran, and they ran, and they ran. No stars in the sky, but the Spirit of God led down into Egypt from Herod to hide. No place for his parents, no country or tribe, and they ran, and they ran, and they ran. Stay near me, Lord Jesus, when danger is nigh, and keep us from Herod's and all of their lies. I love the Lord Jesus, the refugee king, and we sing, and we sing, and we sing. It's beautiful, yeah? So sweet. And I think it's good to remember as Christians that we follow a refugee king and that the heroes of this really important story, important enough that Matthew takes a whole chapter to tell it, the heroes are not the sleazy politicians not the celebrity pastors or the rich or the powerful who get to hang out with Herod and get their picture made. The heroes of our story are not um, consumed with grievance at the loss of cultural clout. I mean, Jesus never once in his whole ministry said, we got to take our country back. What he said is, we need to welcome the stranger, the foreigner, we need to learn how to love, which is laying down your life, and we need to learn to love our enemies. That will be the light to the nations. We need to forgive and ask forgiveness. We need to forgive our debts and the debts of others. Of course, this is not the typical path that most of our world is taking. And there are always those, sadly, in our time, often Christians, who are too afraid to go on a quest for meaning and purpose and peace. They're too afraid to get outside their comfort zone and, and you know, take the journey to Bethlehem with their own two feet. And there are way, way, way too many people nursing their own sense of grievance. And so they're easily co-opted 
and manipulated by political factions and, and leaders. And we see it every day, right? In our own communities, in our own families, just Christians who are swallowed up by nationalism, even white nationalism. And that has a place in this story, but it's not, it's not the heroes. It's not the place of the people that we follow. And so it, it seems to me, if we could hold on to anything from this story, there's a ton to hold on to, but the main thing I think can work us as we head into this season of epiphany is that once you've actually met the Son of God, you can't go back the way you came. You're going to have to go home, find home by another route. But you can trust that God is leading us, maybe not in stars or with angels or, or dreams, but leading nonetheless, patiently and lovingly. And one foot in front of the other, we go slouching toward Bethlehem, walking side by side, saying over and over, stay near me, Lord Jesus, when danger is nigh, and keep us from Herod's and all of their lies. I love the Lord Jesus, the refugee king, and we sing and we sing and we sing. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this story and for this refugee king who turns, literally turns the world on its head. And in this kingdom, up is down and in is out, and the least of these are the blessed, and the ones on top have to learn how to die for the others. And we're grateful for this challenge here at the beginning of Epiphany to move on this, this journey through this, um, I think it's eight weeks season here where we're confronted with you taking on human flesh in the world. And so we ask you to re reveal yourself to us in these stories over the next few weeks. Help us to put one foot in front of the other, walk toward a glimpse of you, and to learn how to, to respond to what's revealed. And we pray for our world that seems so consumed by grievance and pray that you would help us to know how to respond and how to still be a people of hope in the midst of so much despair. Amen. Um, as we come to communion, it's, uh, it's going to be a little weird. There are some of you in the room will just do communion as, as normal. But for those of you at home, um, hopefully you can go grab, I don't know, some crackers and juice or goldfish and Kool-Aid or whatever, whatever it is, a Twix bar and 7-Up, I don't know whatever you're going to make into your elements. But um, if you want to grab those and um, maybe stand together as a group, and if you're in the room, you can stand as well. We're going to receive communion. Because on, uh, at the very end, the other end of Jesus' life, on the night that he was betrayed, he was sitting with all his friends, and after supper, he took a loaf of bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. 
um, do this in remembrance of me. And then he passed it around. They all ate from the same piece of bread. And then in the same way after supper, he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, um, by which he meant it's a new deal, a new relationship between humanity and God that is won by his blood, by his life. life. Blood meant life to them. And he said, whenever you get together, it's going to be weird, but eat this bread and this cup, my body, my blood, my life. Take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. You kind of bring me to life again in your life. That's what he said. He said, every time you gather, eat, eat the bread and the cup, the body, the blood, take it into your life and keep me alive. And then go out into the world and let them feast on you. And so this is why we receive communion, even when we're at home on a live stream. So uh, I'll just ask you all to join me and bless the, the elements. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the bread and the cup. May it be to us um, means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside all of us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. I invite you to serve each other communion at home and if you're in, in the room, will you come?